Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Thelma Vélez. Thelma is a first-generation Latina Latinx woman with roots in Bronx, New York, and Miami, Florida. For much of her life, she has been surrounded by communities reflecting the broad diversity of individuals residing in the United States. From those living in poverty to the extreme wealthy, immigrants and refugees, and people from different genders, races, and ethnicities. Engaging with people whose identities represent humans from all walks of life has shaped her into a versatile person. Thelma, soon to be Dr. Vélez, is completing her PhD here at the Ohio State University. Bienvenida al estudio, Thelma. Muchas gracias por la invitación. I'm really excited to be here. Thelma, you've lived in different places with large Spanish-speaking communities, and for the past few years, you have been completing your doctoral studies here at Ohio State. Tell me about your experience of moving to Ohio. On your website, you describe this as a cultural shock. Why? Well, Absolutely. I kind of know why, but... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, living in New York City and Miami was really a privileged place to be for me, and I think... And most people know that there's just a very big spectrum of diversity. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of Latino, Latina, Latinx community. And it's just the exposure and the representation is there. Mm -hmm. And um, I also had a lot of familia. Mm -hmm. So I had my mom, my mm -hmm. dad. My mom is from Colombia. My dad's from Puerto Rico. All of their families. Mm -hmm. My abuelitas were there. My abuelitas were always taking care of us. <laughs> Tías, tíos, primos, I had 22 cousins on just one side, and we were this group of cousins who just mm -hmm. always hung out together. And you hear Spanish-speaking communities everywhere mm -hmm. throughout New York City. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everyone speaks English as well, mm -hmm. but you don't go to the market. Mm -hmm. You go to La Bodega, right? right? And right. so it's just embedded, and it's just part of everything. But that said, there's still this pervasive idea of assimilation. Mm. And it's very subtle, I think, sometimes within the Latino communities. But this idea that you need to speak English, and you need to make sure that you sometimes leave parts of your culture behind, especially mm. when you're in certain spaces. Right. And that followed me through when we moved to Miami, Florida, which, as you said, this is another very, mm -hmm. like, high Latino population. And It was one of the things that I noticed growing up where everyone there speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. Like you can't go to the supermarket or the bank without speaking right. Spanish. Mm -hmm. And some tourists absolutely detest it. And when I moved there, I did myself. I was like, you need to speak English. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of self-analysis. And a friend of mine or just my group of friends who pushed me to think about this. And they said, why do you always answer in English? Mm. And I thought about it. I had the same conflict with my mother as a child. Mm. She told me, you're going to answer in Spanish. And I said, no, you're going to speak to me in English. Mm. And this went back and forth. And my friends knew. They know I can speak. They know I'm fluent. Mm -hmm. But I still answered in English. And mm -hmm. so it took a lot of undoing, mm -hmm. a lot of personal work to undo that assimilation mentality, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's not that I didn't embrace my heritage, right? I love the fact that I have Afro-Caribbean roots and Taino roots. And mm-hmm. uh, I have, you know, my bisabuela on my mom's side, she was trained as a shaman in the Amazon, mm-hmm. like indigenous roots. I just wasn't fully representing that in all of my spaces. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally did that work, recognizing that to then move to a space that was very white, mm-hmm. where it's no longer a majority minority, but rather what most people talk about is the the United States, especially the Midwestern United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't easy for me to make that transition into a predominantly white space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also wasn't easy, not just not hearing Spanish everywhere, but not having the culturally appropriate foods in these spaces. Mm-hmm. So in New York or in Miami, if I want to eat Nicaragüense or comida peruana, right. or if I want to eat, you know, Cuban food mm-hmm. or Boricua food, mm-hmm. it's at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. And here, that's just not something that's there. And yes, I can cook these dishes. I can make ceviche if I want to make ceviche. <laughs> I can do it, but it's a comfort thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, it was just kind of difficult dealing with the microaggressions that I never really thought about. Mm-hmm. I was in a privileged space being in a majority minority mm-hmm. state, like area. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't I just didn't think about it. But that really led to an awakening for me in terms of thinking about these justice issues that I just kind of didn't have to think about before. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the experiences that really just started driving it home for me was going to the post office. And I really was just trying to buy one thing. And the teller says, you know, oh, well, at the very end, they give you that spiel. Well, do you want, you know, passport photos or stamps? And she also added a green card to it. Oh, my goodness. And I've never heard this before. <laughs> yeah. And she said, uh, or do you need a green card? And I was kind of taken aback. I wasn't, I was like, this isn't something they offer here. And I mentioned this to her. I was like, this isn't appropriate. She goes, no, you must have misunderstood me. You must have misheard. I would never have said that. Of course, mm. why would I have misheard right. green card? Um, and I understood what that meant. And I know that it's very subtle, but it's still is one of those things that just starts to really get to you over time. Um, So yeah, that's just my experience moving here. And I've been here five years. So it's just different. But we add to that the political climate Mm -hmm. and thinking about just being in a space where you know that there's this anti-immigrant rhetoric Mm -hmm. and the support for policies that are inhumane and unjust It's just a little bit trying. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that um, sort of how you were challenged when you went to Miami, right, about um, not not knowing who you are. You know, you knew who you were, but how you were maybe acting, right, um, with other people and in, in the language. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in that because, as you know, I teach language here at Ohio State um, and that... Um, you know, answering in English and and like expecting people, how we buy into this uh, rhetoric of um, Spanish should not be spoken in public or, um, you know, you're in in the U.S., why are you not speaking English or why are you talking to me in Spanish and how this can be so internalized that even we, as we value our language or the language of our family so much in our culture can be sucked into that, right? And can be uh, maybe not as aggressive, but we can be um, 
performing those things that are being passed on, you know, onto us through the culture, through the rhetoric, um, by, you know, like the example that you gave, not by not answering in Spanish or by thinking, why are they talking to me in Spanish, right? And we perpetuate that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I I did. I had fully bought into it. Who knows the age at which it starts being fed to you, right? Mm -hmm. My son is six. Mm -hmm. And I had the same conversation with him that my mother had with me. And he's like, no, that's your language. That's Mm -hmm. not my language. But if he was in Miami, that just wouldn't even be a conversation. Because everywhere you go, you hear it, and he wouldn't be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. having to use it. Right, right. And in a place, obviously, in a place like Ohio, when that happens, any other language, it stands out, and and kids don't want to stand out. Thelma, tell me about your educational journey to higher education. Um, was it hard to navigate? Um, you are first generation, like uh, I mentioned at the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am a first generation um, in higher education. And I think the experience that I have is like many others where my family provided very little help with mm-hmm. with respect to that. Not that they didn't want to help, but just they didn't haven't know. navigated the space mm-hmm. themselves. Um And my counselors in high school, they didn't provide that assistance either, which I know is the story that I hear from other students that I've mentored and high school students who say, I had no idea. Mm. I didn't even know this was an option. But I find that strange because I was the top 5% of Mm. my high school. Like Mm -hmm. out of, you know, all of the students, I was a really high performing student. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't my counselors reach out to me and kind of guide me through this process? Now, what I will say is I've always been a star student, Mm -hmm. and that's because of my mother. Mm -hmm. That is, I give my mom full credit for that. (laughs) She, I don't know how, as a single mom of three, she managed to sit and do homework with us consistently, but we couldn't get anything less than an A. Like, Mm -hmm. if I would get an A-, minus, that's just completely unacceptable. And she also had the foresight to get zoned into the really highly ranked schools. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure who shared that information with her, but she learned that not our schools are funded equally. Mm -hmm. And so she made sure that we were in the highest ranked public schools Mm -hmm. and it wasn't easy, but she did it. So because of that, I was also in a privileged space where I knew what it took to get really good grades Mm -hmm. and how to perform well in school. And so when the time came, I had a counselor in high school who came to me pulled me aside just to let me know that I would not be getting a scholarship that I was eligible for because I hadn't completed the community service requirements that were due in less than a week. So I had no idea this opportunity was even available to Mm me. And she mentioned this to me and I was livid, but you know what? I got those community service requirements done in a week. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That would have been my plan. I got those. Yeah, I got it done. And You know, I made sure that I applied when I got to the university. I went to Florida International University because, like I said, this was funding for a Florida state school. And most of the students in Miami, they go to Florida International University in Miami. Like, we have a big Latino population, Latinx population. So what do we do? We like to stay close to family. Um, And so I did. I went to school closer to family. I wasn't living with my mother at the time, but I have a huge social support network there. Mm And I, you know, I worked so hard to find out as much as I could about funding and scholarships 
because people don't tell us about these things. But I learned that there's a plethora of funding out there for students, and there's different eligibility requirements, but there's a lot of money out there in higher education. You just have to find a way to seek it out, mm-hmm. particularly for first-generation students, right? And so I found a way to navigate these spaces without having the mentors that mm-hmm. most people have, without having that guidance. And I was fully funded for my bachelor's and I was fully funded for my master's mm-hmm. and I've been fully funded for my doctorate program as well. By the time I got to my PhD, I was like, I know how this works. And I had a university fellowship. I had a fellowship from the National Science Foundation. And I also had a fellowship from the Society for the Study of Social Problems mm-hmm. in addition to teaching associateships. And mm-hmm. now I just... Sh- Spread the wealth. I try to make sure everyone understands right. this process mm-hmm. and how to apply and how to write essays. And mm-hmm. I've had cousins say, oh, I don't I don't know what to write. And I'm like, do a draft, send it to me, and I'll tell you what they're looking for. Read between mm-hmm. the lines. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to right. do this for other people. Right. I mean, I think that's key, right? The importance of giving back. I work with a lot of first-generation um, students, Latin, uh, Latino, Latinx students, And one of the things that um, when we work with this population, you have to know that they don't know a lot of these things, that resources that are available, right? And so, and it's not enough just to point it out, right? Not, oh, here's the scholarship or here is this opportunity, but it's actually coming along with them and helping them through the whole thing, right? Let me read that draft or let me help you. What is it that they're asking here? What is this question about? Um, So it's, it's, it's really working with the student at every, in every step. Handholding. Right. And, and it's, um, I see it in my in my view, and this is because maybe I like working with with uh, with my Latino students, and I, I understand, um, you know, that they're first generation, that they don't have all the the knowledge that maybe other you know peers have, because I I didn't have that either. I I know that I missed um, a lot of opportunities as I was going through my journey, and I remember you know. I remember getting scholarships that I didn't apply for that just kind of, oh, I got the scholarship. <laughs> you know, had I, had I known, you know, yeah. I would have gotten even more resources True. because um, I just didn't, ap- you know, I didn't apply. I, mean, I didn't know that yeah. this was, does this existed. Um, so I often share that with my students because also being a first gen, sometimes they might be embarrassed to ask those questions, right? I remember being embarrassed when I was towards the end of my doctoral uh, uh, program, because I had questions still. And I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have these questions right at this as this point of my of my journey. But we do because there's a lot of gaps that we continue to carry through our journey until somebody takes the time or somebody knows the, the, that we might possibly have those gaps and are willing to sort of fill them or, or help you along the way. And that's, that's what mm-hmm. I'm learning with working with my first generation. Cause I know the things that I didn't know. And so I share that with the students and I think they're more willing to then say, well, I don't know how to do this. Right. And right. not be embarrassed. Um, but it takes trust too. I mean, I still think, I don't even know if I know the question to ask. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a very important part of mentorship because sometimes students don't ask questions. They don't know what questions they should be asking. What is something that's available to me that I didn't 
think was possibly available to mm-hmm. me. And so I know I missed out on a lot of opportunities too. And even thinking about people who are groomed mm-hmm. to be in these spaces their entire life. It's just a given. Like their families have invested in them to make sure that they succeed in mm-hmm. college. And not that college is the only way to go. I mean, I was going to do mechanics or surgical tech through a vocational school. Mm-hmm. That was what was being promoted to me. But I didn't know what to ask. And there are people who don't know exactly what to ask. Mm-hmm. And so I try to make sure I give them these questions and say, did you think about this? Did mm-hmm. you think about that? So that they know that there's more to mm-hmm. this picture, whether they're applying to just their undergraduate, whether they're thinking, man, can I reach out to this random professor? I'm interested in their work, but I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Or even graduate students who tell me, I'm applying to the PhD, but no one's responding. Well, let me see the email you're sending out to these faculty. Right. What does this look like? You know, maybe we should rephrase mm-hmm. what you're putting in there. Right. And then they get a response and they're like, wow, I had no idea. I wasn't writing my email correctly Right, right. to garner that attention. Exactly. Yeah. And those are the little, I mean, and we have to be willing to share those little things, right? Those things that are going to make the difference, that are going to really could potentially have a big impact on our on our students, right? Absolutely. Um, helping that next generation, for sure. Um, Thelma, you are an environmental sociologist. Tell me about your research and what that means. So my research, and actually before I begin with my research, I have a bachelor's in sociology and anthropology, but then I got very involved in environmental science, Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in climate change and food sustainability Mm -hmm. and just environmental issues Mm -hmm. all around. Um, So environmental sociology is really this marriage between these two previous degrees that I have, but my research looks at environmental climate and food justice movements. And I look at social movements, like movimientos sociales are really important to me mm-hmm. as someone who's been involved in them from an early age. I just didn't realize that this was, I didn't realize how to bring that into my research and into my academic work. Um, but my dissertation and a lot of my work recently has focused on agroecología in mm-hmm. Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And agroecología is really, if you think about the term and you break it up, it would be about agriculture and ecology and thinking about these ecosystems. But Agroecology is rooted in this peasant movement for soberanía alimentaria, mm-hmm. for food sovereignty. So it's a movement of politics, economics, justice. Mm-hmm. It's about the practice of growing food sustainably, but it's also about the science behind it. It's this very broad thing that in some cases has been stripped down to just this is a science. We care about agriculture and ecosystems. And so after Hurricane Maria devastated mm-hmm. Puerto Rico in 2017, there was a lot more traction for this movement, for the agroecological movement in Puerto Rico. Now, the movement's been there for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Organización Boricua has been there doing this work, promoting food sovereignty. They know that things are not functioning, that they import 85% of their food, mm-hmm. which was even more after the storm. And they know that this is not an accident, that their economic system is reliant on this import-export industry. But after the storm, these organizations got together, the Climate Justice Alliance, and then organizations like Uprose, which is an environmental justice organization in Brooklyn. And then there's support from so many places, and not just from organizations, but people Mm -hmm. around the world. We're like, how can we help 
this food movement gain more traction. And so I look at that and I think about, you know, how is it that these people are organizing and what is the potential that this movement has for the future? Mm. Um, and so that's a big part of my research is in Puerto Rico. But then I also look at issues of, you know, food justice. And it's not just in Puerto Rico. I also do that here in mm -hmm. Columbus and thinking about how our food system can be like just addressed. There's so many problems thinking about right. corporations taking control mm -hmm. over and hijacking like power in the food system. And so thinking about that and just, you know, how the government and how the private sector either are advancing or disadvantaging either farmers mm -hmm. or people who are trying to create a better, more sustainable system overall. Mm -hmm. Did you have to uh, spend time in, in Puerto Rico to I do did. some of this? Mm -hmm. I did. And it was, it was really interesting because I pride myself in being able to find grant money. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm good at writing grants. And I kept like hitting walls mm. when I was writing grants to be able to go down to Puerto Rico. One, I was trying to get money for the organization so that mm -hmm. I could say, here, like, yeah. do Com something with this. Engagement, yeah, right? Community engagement. Yeah, community engagement, but mm -hmm. also like the, whatever you're working on, I know you need seeds and irrigation. I know mm -hmm. you need to, you know, rebuild. Mm -hmm. Here's something that I can help you with. Did you go after? I went after. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. I went after and it took me over a year mm -hmm. because I kept getting declined by these grants. And one of the grants said, oh, this grant is only for um, the United States. And Puerto Rico is not part of the United States, so hmm. you're not eligible. And then another grant, which was from a Latin American organization, said, oh, um, Puerto Rico doesn't count as Latin America. <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly mm -hmm. what the issues in Puerto Rico still are for everyone today. This in-between mm -hmm. ambiguous status that they have to navigate all the time. And so looking at that and dealing with that, it's like I can't talk about Puerto Rico without talking about the legacy of colonialism mm -hmm. and talking about the political economic issues and the problems on the island. I mean, not just that, but I left a week before Ricardo Rosello was ousted. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I missed this like critical <laughs> moment where things were fomenting. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it's a historic moment. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, wow, you guys did this right. and it's beautiful. Right. Powerful. Um, yeah. Very powerful. But yeah. So yes, I did go and I spent time and I was working on farmers. It was something that I, I actually wrote uh, an essay on mm -hmm. and it's a, It's a publication in the Journal of Latin American Geography, and it's about that trying to be a scholar activist and kind of my experience of like, I reached out to all these people and they really didn't even want to talk to me. They were so sick of journalists and everyone and disaster capitalists, everyone coming to extract information from them. And they were just like, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And here I am. I was like, wait, wait, like. I know a lot about agricología. Like this was my master's degree. I can help on these mm -hmm. farms. Just tell me what you need and I can help you. And I, you know, I basically, I'm just going to show up. I know what farmers are like. They're busy. So mm -hmm. just show up on their front door and offer to help on mm -hmm. their farm. And several people, they were just like, yeah, you have no idea. And then other people who are really big in this movement They kind of just let me in and they were like, do you really know about soil? And they mm -hmm. quizzed me and they questioned me and they questioned my Latinidad. And they mm -hmm. were like, oh, but, 
you know, do you eat suruyos and like, do you speak this like really? <laughs> um, and so it was an interesting experience, mm-hmm. but of course, like being of Puerto Rican descent of the diaspora gave me some insider access mm-hmm. that is not readily afforded to other people. Mm-hmm. But then of course, parts of my identity were also being challenged. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting experience and I made great friends and colleagues. And like at some point, las puertas se me abrieron mm-hmm. and everybody was like, okay, we'll talk to you now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, I'll be back. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I like that. Um, I've had moments like that when I, you know, you, I have an oral history project and, and sometimes the people that I'm interviewing um, don't know too much about me. And, and I understand, you know, the trust that there, there has to be some sort of trust for, for the community to talk to you and to share their stories. Right. And I remember very distinctly one time where this group of men um, that I was interviewing wanted to know about me. So before I was even allowed to ask the first question, they were asking me all kinds of questions. And it was fun, you know, it was fun um, to, to, to be able to talk to them. But they were, they were making sure that I was who I said I was and, right. and, and, and that I was a trustworthy person, right? And, and, and I think one, uh, we don't talk a, a, a lot about that, right? The, are you there just to extract from the people, from the culture, from the situation? Or are you invested and, and, and it could take, it doesn't have to take a week for them to realize what your purpose is, is that exchange in a few minutes, they, they, they will know who you are. It can also take years. Like I'm not fully embedded and there's some people who still are just like, mm, I don't know about her. And I'm mm-hmm. fine with that. Right. I have to earn that trust. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my job. Mm-hmm. And how vested I am in that is what they will see with time. Right. Right. Um, you are involved here um, in the Ohio State Food Sustainability Panel and are currently involved with the Linden Cooperative here in Columbus, Ohio, which is a community university partnership for social justice, local food and community economic development. This is at a score applied research and a wonderful way to advance the mission of a land grant university while having a positive impact on our communities. Can you talk to us about these projects? Yes. So the OSU food panel is actually something that came about with pressure from students. Mm -hmm. Um, And these students were involved in the Real Food Challenge on campus. And they were pressuring the university to source more local and sustainable food. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. But they also wanted it to be something that was centered in justice. And Mm -hmm. so the Real Food Challenge also looks at uh, incarceration and mm-hmm. farm worker justice mm-hmm. within the food system. And so they wanted to make sure OSU is not contributing to human rights violations as well. And I don't think it went as well as the students wanted. They wanted the, stu- the university to sign on to the Real Food Challenge. Mm-hmm. And that isn't exactly what happened. I mean, it was pretty contentious, like the actions that they were having, they occupied space. They were also collaborating with divestment organizations and the university was, the administration was very resistant to working with students who are making these kinds of demands. Mm. But ultimately, what did come about was a charge for sourcing 40% local and sustainable or and or sustainable food mm-hmm. at OSU by 2025. And so a panel was formed 
And this panel was basically charged with saying, like, well, how do we source 40% local sustainable? What is local sustainable? Well, what are we doing right now? Mm-hmm. And what are the next steps? And so at OSU, in fact, which is the Initiative for Food and Agricultural Transformation, has actually been pioneering a lot of this kind of work, where they're mm-hmm. working with communities um, and they're trying to support this regional food system, thinking like, how can we support our farmers, but also have the food system be in like in such a way that it is equitable mm. um, and we're considering all of the racial inequalities also that we have within the food system and how do we support trying to address these issues. And through that panel, I met Dr. Kareem Usher, who is in city and regional planning and um, and also Casey Hoy, which is from InFact, and Brian Snyder, which is from InFact. And there just arose an opportunity where Kareem was talking about a project he was really interested in in the Linden community. And this project, he really was like, we, you know, we're trying to set up a worker-owned business. Mm -hmm. And Ohio State is going to need to source food. So if we can get a worker-owned food business in Linden, like this is an opportunity and we know that there's going to be like a gap that has to be filled. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, well, we want to work with the community. Does the community really want a food business? Mm-hmm. What does the community even right. want? Right. And so Kareem was already in conversation with Bread, which is an organization of like 40 plus congregations that work within Linden. And mm-hmm. they do like, you know, building resilience, equality and dignity. And they, they're this very important collective, and they've been working to work with these marginalized communities. And so just thinking about how do we help the community establish a worker-owned business, Linden has already been pushed, like it's been economically marginalized Mm -hmm. by city policies for a long time. This is a predominantly black community Mm -hmm. that's been neglected. Mm -hmm. And so scholars coming in and saying, hey, we can help you is not the best approach, right? right? right. Um, Really having these listening sessions and trying to figure out, look, we know that maybe you wouldn't be interested in a food business, but this could be the first of many. And we're working with the the Democracy Collaborative to try to wrap our heads around, you know, we hired them to say, we don't know how to establish a worker-owned business. Mm guide us through the steps so Mm -hmm. that this community can really just have a model to build upon and then build more wealth within the community. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the purpose of a land-grant institution, and that's just the purpose of, I just think, universities in general is we're embedded in these communities. Mm -hmm. How do we better the communities? Not just how do we publish a paper about these communities and say, like, oh, I'm doing some really great work that Mm -hmm. the community really doesn't care about and doesn't even have access to because they don't have access to the journal. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy work. We're working with these stakeholders. They don't know whether or not they can trust us yet. Mm -hmm. And again, it's back to that idea of trust. Like, Mm -hmm. can the community trust us? I mean, we want them to believe that they can trust us, that we have their best interests at heart, Mm -hmm. and we want to hear from them Mm -hmm. what it is that they need. And so it's still like it's early stages. We're really working on get, garnering more funding and we've gotten some good grants, but we still we have a long way to go for a project like this to come to fruition. Right, right. Um, it's good to hear now that to have those listening sessions and in Linden is a neighborhood that is not very far from OSU. Not it's at all. It's just around the corner. Right. Yeah. So we have um, communities within blocks away. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know. 
the short north here too, that have been ignored in in some ways. And and what is the responsibility of a land grant university to actually, you know, uh, get this communities involved, but together, right? Working together, like you said, not just coming in and say we we can resolve your problem. <laughs> we are here to solve your problem. Um, so instead, listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the best thing that anyone can do for any problem is mm-hmm. just sit back and listen, right, right, and and see how you can help, right. Thelma, I always think that um, the work that we do, uh, the 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 things that we choose to um, to to research or to work on, um, have a uh, sometimes have a personal or family connection. And I wanted to ask you that question: Is there a connection um, with uh, that is personal or that is family uh, related to your interest in food justice? Did you see this sort of issue growing up, or how does how did this come about? I mean, I've always been interested in issues of justice. So growing up in the Bronx, you see injustice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I've been interested in justice, but not really with respect to the food and the environmental justice aspect. So the closest thing I could think is my father worked as a produce manager in a supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were, you know, we love produce. Um, <laughs> and my mother was very into eating and buying organic long before it was a fad yeah. and interesting. She read a lot about and the toxicity. Super expensive. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's always been, for us, it's kind of been a choice. It's like, well, we don't have the iPhone and we don't have the newest shoes, mm-hmm. but we're going to eat food mm-hmm. that we know isn't filled with pesticides and herbicides because mm-hmm. she read a lot to know, like, this is really toxic for the body. Mm-hmm. Um, So I had this component of thinking about the environment and thinking about the health aspects of food. Um, And in my master's, that's kind of what I did. I was focused on el medio ambiente and like agricultura sustentable, sostenible. And I focused on the science of this. Then I was also involved in farm worker justice movements. When I was a student at Florida International University, we were involved in protests and marches. We marched with the Immokalee farm workers. We petitioned our local supermarkets and the Burger King and the Wendy's to, you know, spend a cent more on these tomatoes so that people can have a decent living wage. And we had lots of environmental issues that we mobilized around against as students. We were constantly mobilizing. And again, I just... I thought about these and we worked with the indigenous community, but it took me some time to figure out how to integrate it all into what is now basically my doctoral focus, Mm -hmm. which is bringing together that like social sociology, social movements perspective with the environment and Mm -hmm. food and climate, Mm -hmm. because they're just, it's everything is integrated. Mm -hmm. And so it took me some time, but I wouldn't say it's something that I grew up like really thinking about mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you are now. And <laughs> <laughs> um, all the work that you're doing. Um, Thank you. What are your thoughts about the role of the scholar or higher education in addressing issues of justice, like the ones you just mentioned, and providing decolonial models of inquiry? And we, you know, we talked a little bit, or you mentioned this idea of the scholar activist, right, that sort of drives your work. Yeah, so unpacking this question could be an entire series of podcasts, (laughs) right, unto themselves. And Um, I want you to answer in three sentences. (laughs) (laughs) So um, 
our education system and just the academic model for producing research doesn't lend itself to scholars contributing to communities in a meaningful way. And it's unfortunate to come to that realization so late in the game where the expectation is you need to publish and contribute to your discipline. Like this is really what a lot of academia is about, right? Um, or when you go to a professional meeting or a conference, they're not saying like, wow, it's great. Now it depends. The Society for the Study of Social Problems, like that's what they want to see you doing. Mm-hmm. They want to mm-hmm. see you engaging with the community. That's what they are you know, rewarding you for. But departments don't usually reward faculty for that kind of work. So it makes it difficult, right? Um, And we're kind of discouraged from doing that. Or if you do it, just don't let it get in the way of your other priorities. Mm -hmm. So when we think about this, like, a lot of times faculty, sometimes, and I'll say this from my own perspective, they don't know a different way to do research. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're like, oh, I can't wait to go and extract this data. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like, oh, well, I need to be objective in the in the work that I do. And so I have to go collect my data and not be too connected to the Mm -hmm. community in that way. And this is the norm that's been established for generations. And that's part of the colonial model, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. academia has been modeled after this Eurocentric way of learning and doing and disseminating research. So breaking from this norm, that's the idea of decolonizing research and decolonizing your methodologies. And really, how do you work with the community? Um, And how is it that you can engage in what is now a catchphrase, community-based participatory research? Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? And how do you sit back and listen? Mm -hmm. And how do you, if you're going to apply for grants, if an organization wants you to give them the research questions and your hypothesis, how do you do that if that's not the way that it's been done for so long? And Mm so I think it's really important for whether you're a social scientist or a natural scientist, if you're engaging in research, to think about what that means for the community that you're researching. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not community, you're not researching a community. Maybe you're a microbiologist mm-hmm. and you work with one microorganism. Um, but then don't patent this cool technology that you're making and then sell it to this, you know, developing community in another nation that really needs that technology mm-hmm. to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if there's a disaster like a hurricane. Don't just apply for that rapid grant. Think about it. Before you apply for that rapid grant, like right now, the earthquakes all over Puerto Rico, there's tons of researchers on Twitter. They're like, oh, can't wait to get my hands on that Mm -hmm. data. And engineers who don't really know anything about the situation politically, and they're just really excited to go look at the structural conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it just we really have to just step back Mm -hmm. and think about what our research is doing for and to the communities that our work is embedded in. Right, right. Thelma, is there anything else that you would like to share about your work or your future? (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I hope to be, you know, in a tenured faculty position in the near future and to provide students with the same kind of mentorship that I wish I had Mm -hmm. to help guide students 
I mean, not just Latinx students, right. but any student that really kind of needs that assistance and that guidance to navigate the spaces and also to know that academia is not everything and higher education is not everything. I do think that people should pursue some level of higher education, but I mean, I, I reflect now and I think, man, I could have been balling as a mechanic or a surgical <laughs> technician. Like, right. so, and I wouldn't still be in school. I mean, I, I'm 36 now. So, <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, hopefully everything works out exactly as it's supposed to. I'm pretty confident it does. I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, bueno, muchas gracias por esta conversación. A ti, te lo agradezco mucho. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Sí.